Hey there, welcome to Cocktails and Cliticure, the podcast that's all about bringing the heat. It's time to talk about the smuttiest and spiciest books in town. And trust me, we're not holding back anything. I'm your host, Constance, and together we're diving head first into a world of litlicious pleasure where we celebrate the power of our inner goddesses and embrace the magic of our curves. Get ready to slay those pages, ladies, because this ain't your grandma's book club, okay? We're breaking down barriers, smashing stereotypes, and owning our sensuality like nobody's business. It's all about empowerment, upliftment, and unapologetic self-love. We've got the inside scoop you don't want to miss. This is Girl Talk at its finest. So gather your bestie, tune in, and let's go on a wild, sassy, and unapologetic ride together. Get ready for an irresistible episode of Cocktails and Cliticure. Today, we have the pleasure of hosting Sierra Simone, the acclaimed romance author behind the Captivating Priest series. She is a USA Today and Wall Street Journal best-selling former librarian who, in her own words, spent too much time reading romance novels at the information desk. We love that. Uh, she is the lover of the smuttiest smut and loves writing the dirtiest things she can think of. Let's rejoice in this blessed occasion. Welcome to Cocktails and Cliticure, Sierra. We're so happy to have you here. Hi, thank you for having me. We're excited. I have been waiting for this day. I'm just ready to get into it with you. But before we start, I want to know about your newest release. Yes. So Salt in the Wound is a dark age gap arranged marriage romance. Um, It kicks off my Lioness series, which is a contemporary queer and kinky retelling of the legend of Mark, Tristan, and Isolde. Um, It is probably the most morally gray hero I've ever written. And I am really in like sort of an anti-hero mood these days. I don't know why, Um, but it's been kind of fun and also terrifying to write a hero after writing heroes like Father Bell, who are um, definitely taboo, but also Mm -hmm. good people. Uh, and this hero is like not a good person at all. So it's been a lot of fun to write, but also I'm like, oh man, are people going to be like, Sierra, you've gone off the rails. (laughs) But you know, that's nice to have like variety and to give your, your readers something different every time. So I love that about your writing. They can't all be like sad, cuddly monks, you know, some, some of them have to be (laughs) former CIA assassins. The dirtiest of the dirtiest. I love it. So it wouldn't be cocktails and cliticure without a cocktail. So before we dive into the details of your spicy, spicy writing, what are we drinking today? So today I've got a Macallan 12 uh, neat and uh, I've got it in my Glencairn glass so that mm-hmm. you can, a little tulip glass, you can get a nice uh, bouquet every time you, every time you smell it. <laughs> I'm new to drinking scotch. I have had it in the past, but today is a special occasion. So I said, let's go for it. Um, As a former librarian, your libations are pretty strong, but that's okay. (laughs) So so let's cheers to that. There we are. Cheers. Clink, clink. Yeah. I think that maybe in a past life, I was like a railroad tycoon or something (laughs) because I'm like, I just want to be in like a silk smoking jacket, you know, in a, in a library handled uh-huh. with wood with my Ooh. with my whiskey that I got out of like a globe you know <laughs> that's like the speed I want to live my life at 
that would be really cool. Whenever I read books and I think about the libraries and it's like very cozy and dark, I just want to crawl in that book. I know, right? Right? Petition to build a library like that. I feel like real libraries are always like open concept and very bright. Uh, Yeah. And like they're meant to facilitate a feeling of like, you know, openness and safety and like, you know, for lots of good reasons, right? For fire code reasons, we don't build libraries. Like tiny, small rooms crammed with books. But like, it is nice to imagine ourselves there. Yeah, I like that about books. You can always escape into something. (laughs) Okay, so we're going to go into sip or strip. And it is a steamy rapid fire game. So um, be quick about your answers. I know some of them I am going to want to dig deep. But I can't because I have to keep it fast. So are you ready to turn up the heat? Okay. I have never answered a question quickly in my life, but I will do it for you. I will do my best. <laughs> All right. And just so you know, the rules are after every question and answer, you take a sip of your drink. If okay. you don't want to take a sip, you then tell us a nice little steamy fact about yourself that we don't know yet. Oh. Ready? <laughs> yes. Okay. We're going to get hot. Uh, we're going to start out easy, though. Your okay. favorite trope. Oh, ooh, I do like a nice enemies to lovers. Yeah, I don't know why. I think it's because in real life, uh, my husband is like the nicest, most respectful guy. And so when I'm reading my fiction, I, I want like the opposite. <laughs> All right. I like it. Um, okay. Give us three words to describe your dirtiest novel. Oh, okay. Um, Forbidden altar scenes. (laughs) Yeah, I enjoyed that a lot. Um, If you could choose any celebrity as the inspiration for your next book's sexy hero, who would it be? Oh, um, oh my gosh. You know, I have to say that I watched a show called The Last of Us and I was really into Pedro Pascal as this Mm. like, grumpy inadvertent like dad character (laughs) so maybe like a like a Pedro Pascal daddy kind of character okay I think I watched most of that he's so grumpy but like with a heart of gold you know I just want to crack into all that grumpiness and (laughs) nibble on heart of gold (laughs) nice yeah okay uh what's your favorite aphrodisiac themed cocktail to sip on while writing steamy scenes Oh, gosh. Well, this is where I have to confess to you all that writers are a deeply unsexy group of people. And so (laughs) what I usually am sipping on when I'm writing is sparkling water and room temperature coffee um, because I don't drink it fast enough (laughs) for it to be hot. Oh, my goodness. Okay, we got to take a sip after that one for sure. (laughs) Writers in real life, you know, it's like we are writing these Books that seem so spicy and glamorous, but in real life, we're like eating cheese doodles with one hand while we're typing with the other. And so it's just, it's not as sexy when you see it. (laughs) Okay, I could see that. I could see that. Plus, you got to stay awake sometimes. You know, you're in that room, right? You're writing and you're focused. And if you're uh, sipping on a little cocktail, sometimes you might be a little. Although, if you're writing those sex scenes, a little cocktail might be helpful. There you go. Okay. What's your favorite raunchy read? Oh, okay. So um, I just finished a book called Sweet Vengeance by Yano uh, Onuya. And it is about a woman who summons a demon to help her get revenge. Uh, But the demon 
has these like wings and a tail and he puts the tail to work. Uh, so when they are together, the tail gets involved and it is like, it does things. It can like move. Mm. So that has been my favorite raunchy read lately. Cause it was so spicy. And also I was like a tail. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> I love all the different appendages that, you know, the authors like yourself come up with. And it's like, I would never think about that. Like the aliens and like the way they have sex. There's just so many different things. I just read a book where um, the characters are shifters, but instead of shifting into like a wolf or something, they shift into balloon animals like from a circus <laughs> and they're they're um uh, what they expel when they reach the moment of climax is funnel cake icing um because they're like creatures of the circus uh, or whatever it was you know what it sounds banana <laughs> i enjoyed this book it had emotional stuff it had lore it made me think about uh what is the meaning of existence in like an old testament sense uh god creates adam by breathing life into clay mm. Moon animals are created by breathing into them. I think that there's some like theological resonance there with the balloon animal shifters. So yeah, I if you're if you're into this, the book is called Squeak. Uh, I think it's on Kindle. <laughs> Highly recommend for a great time. What a name! I'm definitely checking that one out. Oh my god, <laughs> that sounds amazing. Um, okay, so would you ever have sex in a church? Would I or have uh -huh. I? Okay, would I? Oh. Uh, here's here's the thing. It's all it's all about context, right? Like you're not gonna okay. go to a, get it on in the middle of a pew. But if you're alone in the church, like it's at night, you're in a back room of the church. You know they always have all those rooms back there. There's there's plenty of opportunities. You just have to seize your moment. Mm -hmm. Prayer rooms, all that good it's, stuff. You know, yeah. Confession. Um, I can't wait to talk about the altar. Okay, have you been to a strip club? and had a lap dance. I have. Um, so I had a lap dance from a stripper named Lily. And Lily had a vibrating tongue ring um, that she would press against your neck or your earlobe or whatever while she was giving you a lap dance in her assless chaps. So Lily, I liked Lily. Lily got a big tip from me. She brought battery operated uh, power to the game. And so I appreciate wow. it. Wow, that is so, <laughs> so cool. I haven't been to one yet, so I need to go. Okay, so I will say pick your establishment wisely. The place was called The Outhouse, and it was literally like a shack in the middle of nowhere, like grounded by fields of cows. Um, and I would, it was like a BYOB establishment. So I would not say it was, you know, the classiest place. You probably want to go to like an upper tier. You're a grown up now. Like you probably want to go to like a higher place where there's like a mandatory coat check fee or something. Mm, okay. Yeah. Good advice. Um, okay. <laughs> what is your favorite toy? Oh, ooh. Okay, so I have uh, from a brand called Lilo, they have this toy called the Sona, um, mm -hmm. which is a sonic clitoral stimulator. That sounds uh, very high tech. And I will say there is like a little bit of a learning curve, right? Like this is not like you take it out of the box and you can kind of just immediately go to town. Like I think you have to experiment a little bit with it. Um, mm -hmm. but it, uh, stimulates your clitoris sonically rather than through vibrations. 
Uh, And so the sonic waves actually reach some of that deeper clitoral tissue inside your pelvis. Uh, So it creates very powerful orgasms. Ooh. Okay. (laughs) You put this up on game. I will say I'm not always in the mood for this kind of climax, which my husband is not. <laughs> right? They're like, you know, I want I want to have the most orgasm anytime. But sometimes like it takes energy to have that kind of orgasm uh, where it's like maybe I should put a towel down before I, I play with. Oh, my God. Like that's that's uh, that's the warning I'll give. Give yourself like a window of time. Oh. Make sure that maybe you've got like a bottle of water nearby afterwards. and Rehydrate. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Okay, we need to drink after that for sure, too. You're over there squirting. I love it. My husband would, would love for me to have that toy. So I think I might. Yes, Lilo.com. And I think they have a couple different models. And I will say they're not the only company that makes this kind of toy. So you might be able to find it for cheaper from a different company. I do really like Lilo as a brand because all the toys come warrantied and they last a really long like a like a long time. So I always feel like I really get my money's worth. I'm a I'm hard on my toys, right? Like I I like it's like my car, right? Like I I get a lot of use out of them and so I wear down those motors. So I can attest they they hold they hold their own. <laughs> oh my goodness. I wear down those motors. Oh my god. Okay. Caveat like this is I don't get any affiliate money from Lilo. This is a completely uh organic review. <laughs> exactly. Okay lingerie i am a fan of good lingerie um so i am a larger girl uh so there are a couple brands that i have found have been really great uh i really recommend gabby fresh's line i think it's with playful promises maybe um there is a gender inclusive uh lingerie store based in california that i just discovered called cantique la um, so it is made for all kinds of, uh, genitalia and external genitalia without necessarily being gendered. Um, and then there's one I really love called Thistle Inspire and Thistle Inspire has, they have different collections and my favorite is the Medusa collection and they are embroidered snakes, um, on body suits or on like bra and panty sets. Um, and so all of those brands, I've been able to find things in my size they're very well made. Um, and typically as companies, I think they have pretty good, um, their values align with mine. So yeah. Wow. Snakes. Snake totally freak me the fuck out. I do think they have lots of other uh, collections. <laughs> Maybe they have one with like a dragon, I think. Ooh, um, now yeah. you're talking about business right there. <laughs> Give me some dragons any day. There you go. I'm liking that a lot. Okay. <laughs> A dominant or submissive? Which are you? I'm very submissive. I can I can be a service top if you know if it's really called for, but naturally I am submissive unless we are going to a restaurant together. In which case you will meet the bossiest version of me. <laughs> I cannot stand indecision about ordering food or ordering drinks. Um, and so, yeah, if we, if we go to a restaurant, you will meet, you will meet Dom Sierra. <laughs> okay. So you got everybody when you go out to eat. I love it. All right. Now it is time, Sierra, to get into the juice. Okay. We love this segment because it's focused all about the spicy, smutty themes of your books. So let's go. Okay. Why? 
do you choose to write smutty romance? Oh, I think it's because naturally I'm a very horny and perverted person. So uh, (laughs) I've written in other genres before, but I just feel like the gravity of spicy romance uh, is inescapable for me. And I think that sex and like sexual desire help me understand other kinds of like romantic or social or intellectual connection that you would have with someone who would like end up being your partner. Like for me, I can't untangle the desire to spend the rest of my life with someone from the desire to have sex with them. That's just how my, my brain works. I am the kind of person that like, you know, if I was single or whatever, like if I saw a person that I would like to put my mouth on, I would not need any more information than that I would like to put my mouth on them. You know, some people, they do need to have a little bit more of like a friendship connection or an intellectual connection. Um, And for me, sort of my physicality is present enough, I guess, at at the surface. Uh But someone that I want to kiss, I'm like, that's all I need to know for now. Like later on, I can learn more. But for now, all I need to know is that I would like to put my mouth on theirs. (laughs) Ooh, I love it. Okay. Do you consider yourself a very sexual person overall, or is it more about fantasy? I feel like from your last answer, it's just overall. I think overall, I do think that um, when you're in a long-term relationship, you have to move from sort of like (laughs) practical application of being sexual to fantasy a lot, right? Because there are some fantasies that like aren't happening in my long-term relationship, so to speak. We aren't like each going out and having lots of one night stands, even though there are people who are in long-term relationships who are polyamorous and who do that. Um, We are not having like lots of group sex or, you know, something like that. So those are things that really exist sort of more in the fantasy sphere. But what I have found is that, you know, if you've got the right partner, you can recreate almost anything with the aid of toys or whatnot. You know, I think as long as you've got a partner who's willing to like jump into that fantasy space for you, uh, then that is really helpful. Um, And so for me, it's sort of like, you know, I kind of exist in both spaces at once. Like I feel like my sex life is very active and very creative, um, but I do sort of like it informs and then my writing like reinforms it. So they kind of make like Mm -hmm. a circle. I get ideas from writing, you know, I get ideas from having sex and they all kind of swirl together. Okay. Okay. I could see toys being used in that way. Um, I did try a sex toy. I had a toy that could fuck me. And I was like, yes, I'm here for it. Although, you know, it can be a little cumbersome, but the idea and the just the possibility was really cool. Yep. I, I think of it like a food processor. Like when I take out the food processor in my kitchen, I am opening up myself to a like a whole array of possibilities for the kind of food I can make, but I am going to have to like clean that motherfucker by hand. And so like, <laughs> there are trade-offs, right? Like sometimes you're like, I just, I'm just going to make a pizza, a frozen pizza um, because like, I don't feel like washing out the, like the greater attachment or whatever, but there are times where it's like, I can do incredible things with this machine. What a time to time. And no, would you ever, on a side note, would you ever try like one of those sex robots, you know, as a toy? I thought about that. I wonder what that would be like. That would be really like interesting. Yeah, I'll try anything. So I for sure would. I think um, as long as I'm assured 
that the moment I am having sex with a sex robot is not the moment where the, like the robot uprising is going to begin. Uh, the robot uprising movie, you know, <laughs> as long as I feel assured about that, I'm fine. I love it. I would have never thought about that, but yes, yes, and yes. Um, I feel you on that one. Okay, so in Priest, um, which is really, really very popular, and I loved it, you skillfully explore intertwining themes of faith and desire. How do you approach balancing sensuality and spirituality to create a compelling narrative? You know, for me, it's really, it's really organic. And so I wish I had a more technical craft answer. But I think that um, as a, as a writer, I approach a character as sort of a whole person, right? That like they're, that there's not a compartment that contains their sacred parts and a compartment that contains profane parts. Like we, as humans are everything all together. And so I think as a writer, just having that posture as I'm working makes it easy to sort of make sure that I'm doing justice to both parts of those to the characters and that mm -hmm. I'm highlighting the sexual struggle. And I think it helps that um, in priest and saint, I would say center a little bit less, but I mean, it's, it's there. Uh, the sexual struggle is the spiritual struggle, right? Like they are mm -hmm. the same thing. They are part of the same problem. You cannot uh, take away the spiritual component and still have the book present conflict like the, the conflict these characters are facing is that they desire when they when they are not supposed to be acting on their desires mm -hmm. um and so it kind of helps that that's like that's sort of the hinge on which the story swings um and so it makes it easy to sort of do justice i think to both both elements of the character yeah yeah it's the forbidden right the forbidden fruit of adam and eve you know and it just kind of spins from there yeah that's interesting. Um, okay. So in Priest, Tyler has a beast within him. Um, I found him to be a very, very filthy talker and <laughs> has like a dom personality for a priest. I was like, what is happening here? Like, I thought he would give in to temptation, but I didn't know he was going to be a dom. And so um, do you think, like, given the opportunity, many priests would? Oh, I think that that is an interesting question. I think it was three or four years ago that uh, a priest was arrested for having sex on the altar of his church. But he was with two dominatrixes. And I believe that he was, like, the submissive uh, in mm. that I'm sure that it happened in like New Orleans. Like, I feel like it was like, <laughs> um, and then I was like, yeah, this is the most Orleans story I've heard, but I think he was the submissive. I could go either way. Here's, here's my takeaway. I think that God is a Dom. And so I think that either as a priest, you are godlike, And so you are, um, you are shepherding. If you're a good priest, right shepherding your flock can be a very dominant experience, right? Like you are caretaking. You're also sometimes maybe telling them hard things that maybe they don't want to hear. Um, you are making tough decisions, um, but you are also making sure that there's plenty of aftercare and you are making sure that your flock is seen. And that I think is a job of a good Dom is to make sure that the people uh, in their scene feel, feel seen. Uh, Catholicism especially, um, but re religion in general is very ritualistic. 
and kink is very ritualistic. It's a very mm. um, etiquette bounded space. There's a lot of sort of tradition around it. Um, Catholicism in particular is very physical, um, but a lot of religion is very physical. Um, there are like charismatic and evangelical Christian traditions, for example, that can be very physical as well. So there is a great physicality in it. I also like to think, you know, if God is a dom, then uh, God would probably like some subs too. And so I think that I can <laughs> a priest being more submissive um, with God as his dom. Interesting. I could see that though, because, you know, the submissive part as a priest, you have a lot of responsibility. So maybe sometimes you do want to be the submissive and you want someone else to take care of you. So I could see, I could see both sides of it. God is a dom. I love that. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I should, I should write that down somewhere. God is a dom. Okay. <laughs> love it. Love it. Okay. So the exploration of sin and consequences adds complexity to their story. How do you craft characters' experiences with the sin to contribute to their emotional growth and depth? So this is, I think this is a, this is an interesting question because I think that like the first component is that as a writer, you have to create textured characters who have complexity. And I think that this is something that um, can be difficult because we kind of tend to want characters to make the best decisions. We kind of tend to want characters not to make choices that we, the reader, wouldn't make while we're reading it. Um, and so as the writer, I sometimes have to resist that, like, oh, this is such a bad choice that they're making right now because I need them to be complicated enough that they have to undergo whatever the story is demanding of them, that they have to be transformed. Because otherwise, if they did not need to undergo a transformation, there would be no book, right? Like they would be able to deal with whatever problem was in front of them perfectly. Um, and so the first part of the answer, I think, is you have to make complicated characters, right? You have to make characters who are um, who are sometimes inconsistent, who are sometimes have different traits juxtaposed against one another. For example, um, my character from Sinner, Sean Bell, he is like a millionaire dirtbag who loves strippers, um, but <laughs> also reads books out loud to his mom while she's getting her chemotherapy infusions. And mm -hmm. so these are two traits that are kind of at odds with each other on the yeah. surface. Yeah. And so I feel like my job as a writer is to explain how these two sort of different characteristics can come out of the same person. Um, and so if I can explain that, then that means I've written my way to kind of a three-dimensional character. And then I think the other answer mm -hmm. is, is that each character is going to have a different version of sin. Each character is going to have a different understanding of sin. And part of their journey is moving from an understanding of sin that was given to them by the church or by their family or whatever to their own understanding of what sin is. And so mm. for most of us, I think if you've grown up religious and then kind of um, stepped away from like purity culture or shame culture, like a lot of our understanding of sin changes to not just all sex is bad, but that, you know, maybe consent is the most important thing. Maybe uh, dignity is the most important thing. We sort of change what we see as sinful. And now my version of what is sinful sex, like 
that would be very, very different from what 13 year old mm-hmm. Sierra thought simple sex was. Like she would have heard all this talk about sex toys and orgies and been like just a gape. But as an adult, I'm like the real sin is when we don't take care of each other. The real sin is mm-hmm. when people are hurt or harmed or left lonely or abandoned. Those things are the real sins because those are the things that harm or diminish the dignity of the people around us. Absolutely. Um, I think people sometimes think of them being total opposites, right? With the church, it's like, it's very religious. It's very separate. And as far as like my experience growing up in the church, it's like one standard of how to behave and how to live your life in the church. But did it always translate to how people treated other people outside of the church? So you're supposed to be a Christian or Catholic, but you want to judge someone who may be queer. I just never understood that when love is love and the Bible says to love, and yet it's it's very different. Um, but yeah, we get kind of sucked into to that piece of religion and we don't take care of other people a lot. And I think that's sad. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Okay. So this is a quote that I really thought was very interesting. Um, and it relates to what you were just saying. Here it is. And in this moment of her Esther-like love for us in a future that was so ephemeral as to non-existent, it came to me that there was no sin here. This was love. This was sacrifice, the opposite of sin. And maybe it was fucked up to feel like God was with us in the back of the room of the strip club. But I did like he was bearing witness to the moment where Poppy opened up herself to the worst of me and erased it with her love, just like God did for us sinners every moment of every day. That feeling that Poppy and I had felt in the sanctuary, that God feeling presence. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, like I stand by it. (laughs) I stand. Um, but I really think when I am, writing about sin, when I'm writing about the presence of God, what I am thinking first and foremost about is the presence of God inside one another, right? Mystics of basically every religion, if you put them all in a room together, you would find no disagreement um, that Mm -hmm. they believe that God dwells inside of all of us. And that when we are looking at each other, we are looking at pieces of the numinous. Um, And so I think that like sex is such a gateway to that, right? Sex is such a vulnerable, intimate, shared space. Uh, Biologically, it creates a sense of intimacy, like with chemicals and pheromones, but it also is a huge release. You get a blood pressure drop after orgasm. You are Mm -hmm. experiencing a biological and neurological catharsis through sex. Um, And so that I think is extremely powerful in like helping us lay down our fears and our worries um, you know, to lie down in green pastures, so to speak, we are able to do that after sex. Mm, it's beautiful. <laughs> it gives me a new perspective a little bit about sex and the after. That's that's really beautiful. I love it. Sex is great. <laughs> it is. It is. It's wonderful. So overall, what was your inspiration for this series? Well, I wish I could tell you that I had like a hot priest (laughs) in my life. Um, I did not. My priest growing up was a guy named Father Bob, uh, who really liked chicken wings and the Kansas City Chiefs. And Father Bob. (laughs) 
Father Bob, our during football season, our mass was only like 45 minutes long. Like his homily would be like two minutes long so that we could get out in time to see the like noon game kickoff. Um, so I did not have the experience of having a Father Bell in my life, but I have always been, um, you know, sort of like my my journey out of kind of purity culture and, you know, sexual shame um, has has always been uh, a preoccupation for me. And I think in Catholicism, it's a really profound dichotomy between what is a very physical and sensual religion uh, it's very sensory, you know, you eat and drink in mass, you might smell incense, there are candles and stained glass, and then you worship mm-hmm. with your body, you worship by kneeling, by standing, by walking, by touching the people around you when it's time for peace. Um, it's a very physical worship. Uh, and the dichotomy between that and then the dogma about sexual sin is very pronounced, right? It's like almost engineered <laughs> to create conflict and misery. When I came out of that sort of context and came into my own sexually, I don't think I was ever really able to let go of the fact that I felt like there needed to be a wholeness where there had been a separation, right? There had been this sort of um, this division between the sacred and the profane, between the body and the spiritual. Um, And I I do want to point out that this is like, this kind of goes beyond Christianity. Um, This is like a a school of philosophical thought that came out of the ancient Mediterranean that predates some of the monotheistic religions. So the ancient Greeks in particular were really into this idea that, um, you know, your mind is sort of this wonderful orb and it is the essence of you. And isn't it so sad that it has to be trapped in this like corporeal form that like, you know, farts and sweats and all this gross stuff. Um, And so the Greeks would love it if you could just have your mind be a floating orb in the world that could interface with other minds, you know, Socratically. Mm -hmm. Um, And this really permeated into a lot of like ancient Mediterranean culture. Um, You can kind of see some of these binary uh, thought processes expressing themselves in Zoroastrianism, for example, which is one of the first monotheistic religions. Um, I mean, monotheistic like almost like duotheistic. There's actually like two spiritual entities. Anyway, I'm not going to go on a tangent on Zora, but you see it, you see it permeating um, what would become Western culture, right? And mm-hmm. so what is hard about um, sex and our, our inner lives is that this division is not just something we get from religion. It's reinforced in the wider culture. Um, and so it's just something that I thought about a lot. And then in 2014, I went to a romance panel um, that had Tiffany Rice on it. She wrote the original Sinner series, which is all about uh, Catholics doing kinky stuff. You know, Keystone uh, books, you know, one of the books that sort of made me into the writer that I am. So I highly recommend that series. Um, I do recommend checking out Content Warnings because it is very, um, it is very Catholic and it's very kinky. Um, so I recommend checking out those content warnings. Um, but it's it's definitely one of the books that formed me as a writer. She was mm-hmm. on the panel um, along with uh, an Episcopal priest named Amber Beldeen and Krista Desir, who is actually my editor at Sourcebooks now. Um, and they were talking about religion and romance and sex and erotica and how how to kind of, you know, how they wrote those things, how they approached them. And one of them said on the panel, and I can't remember who, um, that 
we kind of accept when we're dating someone or making friends with someone that their worldview is going to be affected by what they believe about God, right? So whether or not they're atheist, whether or not they practice religion, um, what kind of religious context they come from, we kind of know, like if we're getting to know someone as a friend or as a potential partner, that that is a, that's a really big part of them. But for some reason in romance, we almost like never talk about it, right? Like these characters are going to get to a happily ever after and raise their children in a specific religious context. We have no idea, you know, what they would like to have happen at the end of their life. We just, we just don't know. Have to go to some niece's baptism at some point, you know? (laughs) So I, I really took that to heart because I was like, it is interesting how in romance, we don't talk about it. So even in my books that aren't priests, like a lot of those characters, like in New Camelot, you will see like what they believe about things, you know, like you have two Catholic characters and then you have a character who's sort of like a lapsed Catholic. Um, you know, you have Thorn Chapel where these are characters who some of them are Catholic and some of them have no religious context. All of them are learning about these pagan rituals, you know, at the same time. Um, and so even though the story isn't like a religious story, like the characters have beliefs that kind of shape who they are. Interesting. I did not think about the fact that in romance, religion really isn't the center of anything unless it's a book like yours. Do you think it's because people want to escape from just anything having to do with that? Because religion is so complex that sometimes when you're reading, you don't even want to think about that piece of it. You just want to fall in love you want to explore the world, you want to explore the unknown, have all these experiences with billionaires and aliens and shifters and vampires. You want all this, but religion or spirituality or future outside of they got married and they had kids, yay, or she's pregnant. What do you think about that? Well, so I think there's probably a few different factors. I think in the early days of romance, I think that... um uh, there was probably some uh, hesitation to mention religion specifically because, you know, in the 70s and 80s, you would have really had to like fully be visible as someone who's writing premarital sex, right? Have characters who are acknowledging that, you know, currently the social context in the 80s is not very pro premarital sex. You have characters doing it, you're going to have to explain why. Uh, not just the characters are doing it, but also why you as an author are comfortable doing it. And so I think that that is part of it, right? That like, when romance was really flowering as a genre, there was still um, some social pushback against premarital sex. And most romance has premarital sex. Oh, yeah. Um, I think that was part of it. What inspired you to um, tackle faith taboo in your writing? just period, because some people are afraid to do that, I would think. I, uh, I think that I'm drawn to taboo, like faith taboo, certainly because I, um, am the kind of person where my inner life really informs everything about me. So like, you know, what I, what's going on inside me informs my intellectual life, my intellectual curiosity, my social life, um, you know, everything. And so it's really hard for me to imagine characters who don't have a really vibrant inner life. And it doesn't have to be specifically religious, but 
uh, I find those contexts are really rich for conflict mm-hmm. and stories. And so I get drawn there. Um, but really, taboo in general is interesting to me. Um, I think that we have, you know, as a society, you necessarily have to draw lines of sort of what's within the walls, right? Like what's permitted mm-hmm. and what's without the walls. Um, and so those lines are sometimes arbitrary. They are sometimes outdated. They are sometimes necessary. Um, and so my curiosity always kind of leads me outside uh, those walls to kind of explore that territory to say, okay, is it never okay to date your psychiatrist? What if dot, 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 you know, is it never okay to, you know, fall in love with your professor? Uh, in what situation would it be okay? And to ask these sort of what ifs, what if for these specific people, this has to happen? It could not have happened any other way. Can I create a uh, characters and a story and a setting that make it so you can't imagine um, any any other thing happening. And so I think that that is, that's where I'm drawn. And then I think my job as a writer, if I'm doing my job right, is to at least have a reader buy in enough that they're along for the ride, right? Mm-hmm. So that a reader say, like, I would never, uh, you know, fall in love with my gynecologist or whatever. But I have to know what happens to these two people. I say the highest compliment I can get is when a reader tells me they they are reading my book and they're like, I'm not into this dot, dot, dot. Right. <laughs> I mean, it does make you question sometimes, you know, like, do I like that? Would I like to try that? You know, it, it really does open a, a pathway to so many different things. That is, that is crazy. Um, the gynecologist thing is hilarious. Oh my God. I just, oh my God. Okay. <laughs> I got to make sure I get this one in. Um, you're engaging discussions around homosexuality, queerness, and the church strike a chord with recovering Catholics. What drove you to delve into this particular theme? Again, I feel like it's really organic. So I'm bisexual. My bisexuality has been, you know, um, something that's been apparent to me in one form or another since I was pretty young. Um And so I always knew that I was carrying inside myself, like, an unsanctioned desire. And I think when I was younger, I built a lot of strange, (laughs) uh, sort of like mousetrappy, one of those things called like a Rube Goldberg device, sort of like thought processes around being attracted to women that would make it okay, or that would make it different, or that would make it um, not a sin, right? Because I couldn't get rid of the desire, but I, I tried to sort of build these different apparatuses around it to, to neutralize it, right? Mm-hmm. And in some ways, Catholicism supports this, right? Like Catholicism has these um, very clever ways for you to deposit your sins into the receptacle of the church via confession, via rosaries, via chaplets. Did you did you commit a small sin? Then you can atone for that sin right here and now, right? Like you can keep your your ledger uh, even as you go throughout the day. Catholicism really welcomes that. And if mm. there's anything that you're struggling with, there's a saint for that. You know, it's mm. like there's an app for that. <laughs> like there's there's a saint for that. Um, so Catholicism is very clever uh, unconsciously in how it can sort of trap you inside of it and allow Mm -hmm. you to wrestle and still stay inside of it. Where I feel like um, in evangelical Christianity, 
it's a little bit more stark. Um, I think that the queer experience inside evangelical Christianity is um, in some ways even more difficult um, because there is no, um, there's no atonement, right? Like if you have, if you are still feeling desire, then that must mean that you have not fully surrendered yourself to God, that maybe you're not saved. So maybe you should let Jesus into your heart one more time. And this time it's going to (laughs) take. Yes, I I absolutely know what that's like. I grew up in the evangelical um, Christianity, you know, environment, and it is like that. Yeah, yeah. And I think that um, what is fascinating to me is that our biblical understanding in the Christian traditions um, is very cultural. It's very informed by culture. So like the Bible as a text is um, typically a translation of a translation. So you are not reading these stories in their original language. And when you do read them, you know, when you understand the historical and linguistic context of the Bible, it really changes a lot. What is sort of interesting to me is that the more I understand God and theology, the more I feel that God is fundamentally queer. Um, So uh, there is um, a Latin word. I can't remember the actual Latin word for the Trinity, for like God, Mm. the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That basically means um, the eternal act of penetrating one another. Like that is queerness because God is then necessarily containing all genders um, mm-hmm. at all times. Um, and, and I think there's a book that I, I read that I really recommend to anyone who's interested in this. It's just called An Introduction to Queer Theology by Father Patrick Chung, um, who's an Episcopal priest um, in New York. And it is a fabulous, it's a slim little volume, but it's a fabulous introduction to different schools of queer theological thought and how God and uh, worship itself is, is a queer act. Um, and so the more I've like embraced that, it's actually brought me closer, I think, to God. It's given me a richer spiritual life to think of God as queer, to think of um, the divine as queer uh, and us all being together in a in a queering space. Like together we are queering each other just mm-hmm. by uh, being having emotional and social intimacy with each other, by having vulnerability with each other. Right. We are opening each other up to new experiences and we are erasing the binary between like you and me, us and them in and out religion Mm -hmm. at its best is tearing down that binary to create a singular whole. Right. And that we are all whole humans together uh, and, and sharing, sharing that divine dignity. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that has helped me sort of, um, approach it. But I don't, I don't know that I could have gotten to that place without writing Saint. Uh, mm. I do think that for me, when I'm writing, I typically am writing with a question in mind or, or kind of a problem, I guess, uh, that I'm trying to explore and I'm kind of writing my way to the answer. So I know some writers who they set out to write a book and they know exactly what they want to say. I'm like the exact opposite. I just, I have to ask myself this question uh, and then make everyone read a hundred thousand words. <laughs> about what I put out. That is such a talent though. I mean, you have a direction as far as like the premise of the book, but how it evolves and develops over time is almost as surprising to us as it is to you, right? As you're writing. Right. It's amazing. All right. Switching gears a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about women and 
how spicy, smutty, erotic reads have become more mainstream lately. Do you feel that, you know, this helps women tap into their own desires and gives them a space to embrace their own sexuality without shame and without judgment? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that fiction in particular is a safe place to practice empathy, to practice, um, you know, trying on new ideas. Because when you are reading nonfiction, there's kind of never any erasing you from the story, right? Like when you're reading um, an, an essay about, you know, how to spice things up in the bedroom, right? It is directed at you. It is directed at you, the reader, and it is meant to be informational. Um, when you're reading fiction, though, the pressure is kind of off, right? To implement any one thing. You're just a tourist. You're just kind of stepping in. But mm -hmm. what's clever about fiction is that it works on your brain much like real life. So your brain, um, they have put readers into MRI machines. I promise I'm not making this up. So they have put readers into MRI machines. And for example, they'll make you read a passage about kicking a ball with your leg. Um, and the center of your brain that controls your legs lights up, even though mm -hmm. your leg isn't actually moving. Um, so essentially your brain translates fiction almost as if it's really happening to you, almost as if like your body is really involved. Mm -hmm. And so it's this beautiful technology, if you want to use that term, that allows you to have more empathy for the people around you. And it also allows you to sort of test drive certain ideas, certain situations. Mm. And I think that, but there is still that safety of both being anonymous and a sort of psychological safety and that you, the deep, real you, uh, does not actually have to try the nipple clamps, right? Do you remember like Skinamax back yeah. in the day? Yeah. Okay. So they had some episode where like they had all these women in a room laying on beds and like the women were able to come without like any touching, any like penetration, anything. It was all mental. And I was like, that is so interesting. But like two years ago, when I really started digging deep into this erotica and this smutty romance. I was able to come on my own without even touching myself. That's amazing. Yeah. I, that's like the goal, right? Like in the grocery store line, shorter or whatever. <laughs> like, what a talent. <laughs> It's crazy. It's crazy. Like I got to be in a like a really like zone. And usually it's like a why choose romance. Like, you know, it's got to be like really intense. And I'm like super focused on it. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's happening. It's like it's like uh, when Harry met Sally moment and you're like and I would be like at my desk doing something. And then I'm like, oh, I'm going to read a little bit. And I'd be like, oh, shoot. My panties are getting wet. Maybe I need to change my change my pants. Is this happening? So funny. Okay. In your opinion, has a romance genre portrayal of women's empowerment evolved over time, especially for authors who write spicy romance? Like, how do you see this continuing and progressing in the future? So absolutely. It's so easy, I think, to sort of draw this contrast between romance now and romance as it started. And I will say that I um, I was a latecomer to romance. I came to romance in my like early to mid-20s. Um, I did not grow up reading it the way a lot of romance authors did. So a lot of my experience, all of my experience was pretty much post Fifty Shades. 
and then going back and reading older books. But I have a lot of fondness for the older romance books because I think that they were doing something really transgressive at the time. You know, they were they were going up to the edge of what they could at the time. Um, and so the fact that, you know, you have romances in the 70s and 80s with unabashed premarital sex, uh, where you have heroines start talking about things like birth control, that is radical. Um, and so mm-hmm. now looking back, we're like, oh, no big deal. Like, right, premarital sex, you know, yeah. no big. But the fact that people in the 70s and 80s were were showing this in full explicit detail, that was radical for the time. Um, and so I think that what romance has provided is a space for women to talk to each other, right? Without, and for a long time without men watching. I don't want to erase um, people who, um, you know, who have been writing queer male romance at the time. I don't want to erase any uh, non-binary authors who have been working uh, in the space. And even, you know, straight cis men who just enjoy romance. They are, they are there. Um, so with that sort of asterisk there, um, mm-hmm. I think as it's growing, will become more intersectional. Mm. I hope and this is definitely desperately needed right now. Um, but I see so many women, uh, queer women, BIPOC women working to create that intersectional space so that we're not just talking about positivity uh, for women. Uh, we are talking about positivity and representation for women of color, for mm-hmm. queer women for um, people, for trans women, for, you know, for everyone, for differently abled women, for fat women, for poor women, um, that I think that's where romance needs to go next. And Mm -hmm. I see a lot of authors working really hard to make that happen. Um, I will say the publishing structure is sometimes hard to push against. um, And so there is some resistance in traditional publishing still to publishing uh, representative romance stories. Um, there hasn't been a Black romance on the New York Times bestseller list in years, if ever. Mm-hmm. These are all barriers that romance, as everyone needs to face. I think that, like, you know, authors are working, um, content creators are working, but I think it's also the work of readers, it, you know, to make sure that they're reading um, outside of their own experience, that they are supporting these authors, that they are talking about these authors. Um, because if if romance stays stuck here, it's going to leave a lot of people behind. Absolutely. Based on your experiences, individuals carrying deep church-related trauma, addressing the topic of sex with children can be challenging. Do you have any insights to share? Yeah. So I would just say that put, put yourself in the posture that this is an ongoing relationship, that you... Um, you know, unless your children are on the ACE spectrum, which is incredibly valid, right? Um, if, you're, if your children are not on the ACE spectrum, then um, they will probably grow up to be sexual people. And uh, we want to make sure that they are good sexual citizens. Uh, and so I usually try to gear our conversations around sex uh, towards that, right? Like that you are eventually going to go out and be part of the sexual citizenry. And I want to make sure that you care about the people that you share your body with and that are sharing their body with you so that you have concern for them. You don't have to be in love, right? That mm-hmm. I don't think great, but you have to be willing to afford them respect. And you should also know how to ask for respect for yourself. So you should care about consent, uh, both for yourself and for the other person. You should have concern that they're having a good time, that they, you know, that they are enjoying it as you are. Um, and that you should 
feel free to make your own ethics otherwise around sexuality. I think if you are having consensual and compassionate, you know, or respectful relations with people, then you are free to sort of create your own ethics, whether or not you are polyamorous, whether or not you are monogamous, whether or not you kind of never want to have a long-term relationship. Those are all yours to decide, you know, Mm -hmm. when do you want to fluid bond with someone, for example, when do you want to not have protected sex? You know, those, those, decisions that um, are going to be informed by consent and by concern for the people that you're with. Um, but as long as you have those things, like there's not really a wrong answer. You might want to fluid bond earlier, or you might decide, no, I'm still seeing other people. I don't want to do that. So I think that's kind of been my attitude as a parent. The way that I give answers changes. Uh, you know, it's changed from when they were in elementary school, where I was mostly concerned with um, bodily autonomy with being able to sort of name their bodies Mm. um, and also learn how to respect yeses and nos from other people, even when it was things like hugs, you know, like, no, you do not have to give someone a hug if you don't want to. You shouldn't hug someone unless you think they want to hug too. Um, That kind of conversation uh, to now that they are, I have a ninth grader and an eighth grader, these conversations are a little bit more specific, right? That, you know, I, you know, want them to know that people that porn can be great. There is great porn out there. Those people are the Olympians of sex. <laughs> These are uh, people do it as their job. They are athletes and performers. But now that they are entering into a, like a sexual age are a little bit more specific. I think it's important. I, maybe not everyone will agree that these conversations not only be ongoing, but around that predate, I guess, uh, dating and stuff like that. Because I think that these conversations can sometimes come too late. Um, and I don't want them to end up in a situation where they're maybe having unprotected sex and they don't know how, you know, they don't know how condoms work or they don't know how to ask for things. I kind of, this is the age where we started getting a little bit more granular. Um, but I also try to keep it light and short, right? Like mm-hmm. no teenager wants a TED talk from their mom about sex. It is the cringiest possible thing. So I try to keep it just an ongoing conversation, you know, like yeah. see sex in a TV show, you know, using that as a quick opportunity to say a sentence or two about like, oh, I really like that he asked before he took off her shirt or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that ongoing conversation has served me well because it's a lot of pressure to put on yourself as a parent to say, I'm going to download everything they need to know about sex in one 45 minute talk, because yeah. neurologically speaking, that teenager is going to check out after five or 10 minutes. We keep it ongoing. We keep it short. Uh, and now that we're, they're getting older, a little bit more specific about, you know, here's what birth control can do. Here's mm-hmm. what it can't do protect you from STI. Um, and I will say just real quick as a finisher, if anyone has elementary school age kids uh we used a book called sex is a funny word it is a illustrated book that is gender and ability inclusive so there are bodies in wheelchairs there are fat bodies uh, and it does not talk about gender in a uh essentialist way um and it is written for elementary school kids it is more about bodily autonomy and naming and kind of getting into consent than the actual mechanics of dating, right? But it's perfect for elementary school age kids. We bought each of our kids a copy. We read parts of it together, but then they were allowed to keep the books in their rooms so that they could go back and reread it on their own without, you know, like mom there. It was a really great way for us to kind of facilitate those conversations. 
Wow, you dropped a lot of really good gems. I don't have children, so I saw that question and I was like, I, that would be a good question <laughs> for her to, to answer. She has kids and she knows about the religious, spiritual background that a lot of people have. I noticed that a lot of people are from small towns. And so, you know, exploring the world around them, the only way they do that is through books. And having these types of conversations can be difficult. By having these conversations now, though, their children are less likely to deal with some of the issues and the baggage that they have growing up in that environment. I think so. And I just want to say that um, to to parents who maybe feel like awkward, you know, kind of taking this posture with their kids, you know, having these conversations, that um, our culture is not neutral. So I think that there is like this sort of default hope that our kids are going to, they're going to go to school, they're going to watch TV shows, they're going to read books, they're going to watch TikToks, and that all of those things are somehow value neutral. Um, and that is not true. This is not true when it comes to racism. It's not true when it comes to homophobia or transphobia. Our culture is not neutral to these things. And so when your kids absorb TV, books, TikToks, they're going to absorb the ambient levels of those isms and phobias uh, into their into their psyche, right? And so I think part of our job as parents is that even though it feels awkward, even though it feels weird to be intentional about it, to recognize that we need to create our homes as spaces uh, where we can sort of decolonize those ideas um, about racism, transphobia, about sexual shame, because the gender roles, they're going to absorb it through the culture anyway. Um, mm -hmm. And so it, there's not this idea of like, well, if I don't talk about it, it'll be fine, right? Like, mm -hmm. it probably won't because our culture is not fine. What we teach boys and what we teach girls about sex through TV shows and TikToks that is not fine. That is how you end up having college students making the same mistakes that were made in the 80s and then in the 50s and then in the 30s, right? Like mm -hmm. that's how you have bad college campus culture because mm -hmm. these, you know, people have just absorbed these toxic ideas about sex and dating from culture and it hasn't been disrupted at home. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that like as a parent, you just have to accept that like we don't live in a neutral world. And so it's our job to make sure, at least at home, that we are disrupting those ideas. Yeah, yeah, totally, 100% there with you. Did you know that you were always going to be this brave, wonderful writer that you are? No, I did not. Uh, I'm a bit of a reluctant heretic. Um, and so I never sort of woke up and was like, I'm going to do... Um, you know, I'm going to do something transgressive, right? Like that's just, that's not in my nature, even though I am curious about the forbidden about taboo. It's a very internally uh, directed thing for me. It's, um, it's a curiosity I have inside of myself. It's not like a, um, it's not a mission statement, I guess. Like I, I don't wake up and I'm like, I'm going to challenge society. I'm curious, right? And usually that curiosity comes from some kind of pain or fascination inside of me. I, uh, have always found writing to be the way that I access that. I don't, I don't know why it's just from a young age. Uh, writing has been sort of the most natural um, uh, path for me to sort of think my own thoughts. And I think it's because uh, I'm a reader. My family was not, they were, they loved that I read. They thought it was amazing, but I grew up in a very blue collar family, you know, that was very poor. Lots of people, you know, in my family worked two jobs um, mm -hmm. and uh, there were some mental health issues you know, so my, that my mom was wrestling with. And so like, there were not a whole lot of readers around me, but I just, for some reason, when I found books, 
when I was young, everything just made sense. And I was a voracious reader. And so I think that uh, the writing started with reading. And actually, so when I meet readers who are like power readers and they don't want to be writers, I'm like, I don't understand (laughs) because to me, they're just they're they're the same thing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Gobble it up. Gobble it up. Okay, so what is the book of your dreams that you want to pin one day? Um, okay, so oh, this is such a hard question. I actually have been working on a cheating series. Um, that's like a historical cheating series. Um, and I have just been really drawn to cheating books, I think for the last four or five years. And here's the thing, they never quite scratched the itch. I don't know why. I actually did just read one faceless by Skylar Mason, which was perfect. It was exactly what I wanted. It was real cheating. It was not fake cheating. It was real people hurting each other, mm. and trying to figure out where to go from there. I want people to actually wreck each other. And then I want to see what happens in the aftermath. Like, can you heal? Can you grow from it? So Faithless by Skylar Mason. It was it was so good. Um, that also her, it's in another, it's in a series with another book called Purity, um, which is all about a girl in purity culture trying to lose her virginity. Um, so it, that's a, that's an amazing book. So if anyone's interested in these topics, that was really good. That's kind of the one I really want to, I really want to write it, but I also have been toying around with a romanticy idea called bad princess for like years now. So if I have just like random extra time, I want to write just like a super horny fantasy series. (laughs) Yes, please do. I love romanticy. Like that's one of my number one like genres that and then I think maybe I'm into the religion when based on my background. <laughs> but um, but yes, please do that. Oh my god. And get crazy with like the appendages and stuff. I, if it's fey and wings and like whatever, I gotta see it. Okay. Uh, what's uh your favorite book that you've written to date? Um, oh, oh my gosh, this is so hard. Okay, so I think that um, this answer changes every single day. Um, but probably my favorite book is American King. Uh, it is the end of New Camel. It's a weird book to say because it's not like the first book in a series. You have to read American Queen and American Prince before you get to American King. Um, but it is probably the most honest creative experience I've ever had in the sense that everything I wanted the book to be, it sort of came out of my fingertips being. Most books need like punch <laughs> into shape, but American King, even though it definitely left me like a skeleton <laughs> and a ghost to write because I gave everything I had to it, um, it was exactly what I wanted it to be. Excellent. That must be an incredible feeling to know that like you set out to do a certain thing and like the end result was exactly what you wanted. Yeah. Okay. So thank you so much for being here. Are there any projects that you have coming up that you want to share with us? Okay, so um, the book to Salt in the Wound is coming out next month. That is called Salt Kiss. Uh, and it is a um, it is that Mark Triss and Eastold retelling. It is queer. It is very kinky, very morally gray. Um, and yeah, it is, uh, it's been really exciting working on this series because it's a little bit darker than I normally go, but I really like exploring that kind of psychological tension. Um, and then on the happier side in October, uh, me and my co-author Julie Murphy are releasing a book called a Holly Jolly Ever After. Um, a Holly Jolly Ever After actually deals a lot with purity culture and sexual shame. 
the heroine uh, has come out of purity culture and she decides that she's going to reinvent herself by uh, starring in a sexy movie. She's an actress, but she uh, gets to set and it turns out that she's really bad at (laughs) faking sexuality because she's never had good sex in real life. And so her co-star, because he cares deeply about art, uh, says, I'll, I'll help you. I will teach you how to have good sex in real life. And that way you'll have, you know, you'll have a good time in the movie. Um, and so it's a lot about, you know, it's kind of a character who has already decided that they're trying to move out of purity culture, but they still have this sort of lingering, like they just can't kind of make it click, right? Like they're trying to put it into practice and it's really hard. And so she has to learn how to masturbate. She has to learn how to make herself come. Um, and then learn, you know, how to have great sex with her mm-hmm. co-star. So it was a lot of fun to write. It was very healing, I think, for mm-hmm. anyone who, but it's also very lighthearted. So for anyone who comes out of purity culture, I think they'll see a lot of themselves in Winnie. Wonderful. That is amazing. Sounds so fun. I can't wait to read it. I can't wait to finish Salt in the Wound so I can get into the sequel that's coming out. I cannot wait. I'm super excited. I Thank you so very much for coming on the show. Tacos and Cliterature, we're very new. And anytime I get a wonderful author that says yes, I just like ah, internally pan out. So thank you so much. And we hope to have you back again. Thank you. And that wraps up another episode of Cocktails and Cliterature, where things got steamy and conversations got spicy. If you enjoyed our wild book reviews, author interviews, and irresistible cocktails and wines we sipped on, Make sure to subscribe, download, and rate our podcast wherever you listen. Stay connected with us on Instagram and Facebook at Cocktails and Cliterature for all the latest updates, behind-the-scenes fun, and more. And if you'd like to support the show, consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page. Your support helps us keep the naughty conversation flowing. Thanks for joining us on this thrilling journey. And hey... If the world asks you why you're blushing, tell them you're listening to Cocktails and Cliterature, the podcast that brings the heat one smutty chapter at a time. <laughs>